Pastor Corey here with Heights Church. Thank you for listening to our sermon podcast. If you would like more information about Heights Church, simply go to weareheights.org or follow us on our Facebook page. If you're looking to get plugged into a church, feel free to reach out to us via our website by simply clicking contact, and we will help you find a similar church in your area. Hope the podcast serves you well, and thanks for tuning in. Good job. You crushed that thing, girl. Come on. We're going to get you up here more often. Just what you want. Uh, the Restore Network is incredible. Uh, we have a, a lot of foster families in our church. I'm somewhere between 12 and 14 uh, families that foster within our church, which is also, a, 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 that's incredible. Um, and so we do need families always. So I would encourage you to be in prayer. Maybe God is calling you to foster. Uh, most certainly God is calling us as a church to give. So part of that $25,000 that we're aiming to raise, uh, I think 4000 of that is what we'll give to the Restore uh, network. And so um, I'm excited to see what God does in that. Thank you, Brittany, for getting up here. It's super cool. Uh, let, me, uh, let me spend a minute to pray. Uh, I usually get here about two hours before you guys, and today I got here at the same time as most of you. I juggled all three kids. You know what that feels like. Get out of the house. My car was dead this morning. David had to come get me. Who set a donut line for 20 minutes. I don't know what the person in front of me ordered, but clearly everything on the menu. And so I don't know, I don't know if you have ever showed up to church a little jittery and a little uh, beside yourself. Uh, that's where I showed up today, and so I always want to be transparent about where I'm at. So let me pray. Uh, let me invite you into a prayer that I pray uh, in these moments. And so, uh, God in heaven, I pray now just, just for your strength and confidence. That's the only thing I know to pray for whenever I feel a little beside myself, Lord. And so I pray for your strength. <clears throat> I pray for your confidence. I pray for clarity that comes uh, from your word. May it settle my soul and my anxieties. Uh, just settle my spirit. Help me just in this moment uh, with, alongside and with our family uh, here and as well as online. Uh, God, help us lose track of time. Uh, put noisy microphones to the side. Put the rush and busyness of kiddos to the side. Donut pickups. God, just get that out of my mind. A car that's temporarily messed up. Of course it is. You, know, you say that everything is going to rust and moss will eat what, what doesn't. And so, God, uh, I pray you just settle my soul. I pray the same for those who are here as well, whether they have kids or not. Sunday mornings can be rushed and hard as we're entering into an atmosphere of worship. The enemy wants to kill everything that you want to present to us, uh, but he's a coward and he's already lost. And so help keep us mindful of that truth. And so God, just give us again your strength and your confidence this morning. We pray this in the sweet name of Jesus. Amen. Amen and Amen. All right, so as you heard us sing Joy to the World earlier, uh, we are entering into a season that the church calls Advent. And so Advent, is a real simple definition, just means to wait, or it means to await upon the arrival of someone else. We're waiting upon the arrival of the king. And so what's beautiful about Advent is while, while it is like a kind of a hard right turn into like, whoa, we just we went from singing promises, the joy of the world, what's happening right now? Advent is beautiful because Advent is a season that is celebrated all across the globe for Christians. So not just the people in our church, but Christians literally all around the world, millions and of more of Christians gather together to Advent, to set in a season of waiting. And the purpose of that is, is kind of twofold. The first purpose for that is to um, better identify with Israel who had to Advent the coming of their king. Israel sat in a season of 
Advent, waiting upon their Messiah to come to them. The second kind of purpose for why we said an Advent is to remind ourselves that we're no different than Israel, that even though Jesus has come and lived the perfect, die, uh, lived the perfect life, died the most horrific death, resurrected to new life, he's birthed the church, he's also not yet returned. And so we as a church, this side of the cross, we still Advent. We're still waiting on our king to return. And so the church then globally, which is really beautiful, around the world, around the whole globe, millions of Christians will be setting in the same scriptures, setting in the same song, setting in the season of Advent. And so it's not just a sermon series, it's a season, right? It's not just four weeks in November and December, but it is our whole entire lives. Until Jesus either comes uh, back to collect us, or he calls us home through death to spend time with him, we advent. And so this is just a, a season to be reminded of who we are and who God is. And so each week there's a theme. Uh, these are not on the screen, but you can write them down if you're a note taker, if you're online, write them in the comments. The theme each week, it has hope this week, peace, joy, and love. If you've been raised in the church, this should be somewhat familiar to you. Hope, peace, joy, and love. This week we will hit Hope. Before we get into the sermon, let me ask you a question. If I could tell you why you were thirsty and never satisfied, would it be a sermon worth listening to this morning? If I could tell you why most every relationship you enter into at times seems monotonous, monotonous and dull, would it be a sermon worth listening to? What's interesting about this time of the year is that marketers specifically with Black Friday in our rearview mirror, marketers this time of year, listen, they understand how thirsty you are. They understand like the relational crave that you have that this holiday season, believe it or not, will not satisfy for you. Like the goal of a marketer, like some kind of professional marketing executive, his goal is not to quench your thirst. Her goal is not to quench, you, quench your thirst. Their goal is to recognize, I see how thirsty you are, and I'm going to keep you that way. And there is no better time of year than to see that than right now. As we look at Black Friday, as we move into the holidays, I mean, how many ads do you have popping up on your Facebook right now? Amazon, Best Buy. Do people don't go to Best Buy anymore, right? They're popping up on there. <laughs> their, their whole job, right, is to identify, I see how thirsty you are and how dissatisfied you are. I'm going to offer you the world, and I'm going to leave you that way. Think about this. With me, think about some of these. Kelly, put these up. I was riding in the car yesterday, bored, and so I was thinking about this. Think about these slogans. Disneyland, the happiest place on earth. Said no parent ever, but that's their motto. <laughs> They're like, this is a glimpse of hell. This is why I believe in Jesus right now. PlayStation, okay? New PlayStation's out. It's way more money than it should ever be. PlayStation, live in your world, but you can play in ours. What is that? They're offering a promise aren't they? Right? Do, do the work you're called to do there, but man, when you get home, and instead of loving your family well, just come veg out with us for a little while. Next one. What's the next one you got for us, Kelly? Airbnb. Belong anywhere. What kind of promise is that? I stayed in an Airbnb in Hollywood once. I most certainly did not belong in, okay? <laughs> There's some places you just don't belong, believe it or not. BMW, the ultimate driving machine. Is that not a promise? Like, that's a, that's a, bold, that's a statement bold enough to make Ford mad. You know what I'm saying? The ultimate driving machine? Like, come on. And that guy got paid a million dollars to come up with that. Put this up here for Pastor Jeff Nail because he loves John Deere so much. John Deere. His dad owns a Kubota dealership, by the way. 
John Deere. Nothing runs like a deer. That's not true. You know what runs like a deer? A cheetah. I saw it. <laughs> National Geographic, right? Lots of things run faster than deers, by the way. Jeff would say a Kubota. I would say a cheetah. It, it, the, re, the point of like these, you can get rid of those, Kelly. The point of those, besides it kind of gets you laughing and woke up this morning, is this. Marketers give you a promise, and that promise is always empty. And you know what it does? That promise does? It ultimately leaves you in a season of Advent. And so Advent's not just something that we do as a church. Like the enemy understands, culture in some ways understands, the world understands that if we can offer, if they can offer you a, an enticing enough promise, it will create a longing in you to leave you in a season of waiting, waiting for the next product, waiting for the next ad. And so that this promise then is always empty. And so what I want to do is I want to show you the original promise in Scripture. A little bit, of, this is gonna be a little bit more teaching than preaching today, but I gotta set up the whole series for you. So I'm gonna look at what's called, today we're gonna look at what's called the Proto Evangelium. Fun word, isn't it? The Proto Evangelium, the first good news, the first presentation of the gospel. You could say the first promise. It's important that we look at this when we get there in Genesis 3.15 because in the Proto Evangelium, the first promise of a son, that's what initiated Advent. And it wasn't some marketing scheme. It was a guarantee that upon the son's arrival, everything else would begin to taste better, that everything else that you would drink would begin to have a better flavor about it, that every relationship that was shattered in creation would most certainly work itself out. The Proto-Evangelium, fun word. Anybody want to try to say it with me? Proto-Evangelium? Yeah, you nailed it. Good job. Online, they can type that stuff out and Google it. They get the cheat, right? The first promise of a Messiah. And so here's what we're going to do. I'm going to take you through three points, okay? We're going to look at the fall, briefly. We're going to look at the curse, and we're going to look at the promise. The fall, the curse, and the promise. The big idea is that the gospel mends every single relationship, okay? The gospel mends every relationship. Let's start with the fall of man. This is where sin comes from if you're a new believer in the room or a non-Christian in the room. The fall. If you're ready, say you're ready. ready. All right, we got to sum this up. <clears throat> Uh, in Genesis 1 and 2, we're not going to read all of it. We don't have time. In Genesis 1 and 2, that is what's called the creation narrative. It's the way by which God created uh, everything as we know it today. Uh, during Genesis 1 and 2, hear this, there was an absence of sin. There was no sin. Everything was perfect. Everything was created perfect. It was very good to use the Lord's, word, uh, use the Lord's words. Uh, God had only given Adam and Eve a few things to do, which are pretty incredible. He, they were told to maintain dominion, which meant to oversee the animals. They were called to cultivate the land, which meant to take care of the garden that they lived in. Check this out. They were literally commanded to be fruitful and to multiply. I mean, come on, somebody, right? They were, they were commanded to literally to have sex and to have babies. What other religion gives you that? You know what I'm saying? If you're in here not a Christian, maybe that'll entice you towards being a Christian, right? Like, hey, babe, did you hear what that command was that God gave those people? And then the last one they gave was don't eat. Don't eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, for you will surely die in that day, is what God says. And so they're really not given much that they're not supposed to do except for eating of this tree of knowledge and good and evil. So Adam and Eve have everything that they could ever need. They have everything that they could ever desire. They literally have everything. I mean, picture in your mind the absence of everything negative and terrible that's ever existed in your life. It's gone. That's what Adam and Eve's life would have looked like. And so then the serpent comes in. Now we know that this serpent is Satan. And he comes in and he says, did God really say that you couldn't have any of the fruit in the garden? And he's talking to Eve. Did God really say you couldn't have any fruit 
in the garden, anywhere in the garden. And Eve says, well, God said that we could not eat of the tree of knowledge and good and evil. We cannot even touch it lest we die. But that's not what God said. God said, you just can't eat of this tree of knowledge of good and evil. And so Satan comes in. What's interesting about that is he comes in and he twists the words of God. He doesn't try to disprove God. No one can disprove God. But he comes in and he tries to um, change the words around. And what's fascinating about that is like there is no disproval. And as you sit and think about that, like science cannot disprove God. The most intelligent intellects in the world, the greatest scholars of all time cannot disprove God. I can't disprove God. No one in the room can disprove God. But here's the deal. But if someone can get you to doubt God, well, now they've got the upper hand. And so Satan comes in, and he doesn't try to disprove who God is. Rather, he just tries to get them to doubt. And in effect, what Satan does is he offers Adam and Eve a promise. The greatest marketing director to have ever slithered on the earth. He offers them a promise. Maybe his uh, slogan would read similar to Apple's slogan. Think different. Isn't that interesting? All the Apple devices we have in our pocket and their slogan is thing different, and it's literally an apple with a bite taken out of it. Come on, somebody. I'm just saying. There's some correlation there, is there not? Satan is literally looking at them, and he says, you can think differently. He tells them, if we were to read the text, your eyes will be opened, and you will begin to think like God. You will know good from evil. You will know good from bad. And Adam and Eve, listen, they had everything, everything we could ever want, desire, need, or crave, except for there were no cravings because they literally already had it. They have everything, and Adam just, or sorry, and Satan just offers them a little bit more. And the scripture says that Eve sees the fruit first, and she finds it desirable. And so she takes a bite of that, and then she gives some to Adam, and Adam takes a bite of that. And in that moment, I need to be very clear here, in that moment, all hell breaks loose, loose on earth. Every single thing tragic that could ever happen in the cosmos enters into creation in that moment. And you know who's held accountable in that? Adam is. So Eve looks at the fruit, sees it desirable. She takes it, she gives it to Adam. But in Romans uh, chapter 5, we'll get, yeah, Romans chapter 5, Adam is the one that is held accountable. It says this, I think Kelly has it for you. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one, what? Man. And death through sin... And so death spread to all men because all had sinned. And so Adam, while he's sitting there with everything he has in the, in the midst of this being uh, brought into temptation, being brought into doubt, is led astray. Here the, here's the deal, men. Let me just hit you with this quick and fast. Look, if you don't model and offer good, godly leadership to your wives, someone else will lead your wife for you. Just look at the holiday season. Someone or something else. It might be the Target app. It might be a physical dude taking her by the hand and walking her out the front door of your house. Like, this is what happens in Genesis 3. Do you understand the weight of that? Does that help you understand the weight of what is happening here? And so Eve takes a bite. Adam is most certainly held accountable by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 5. I want us to feel what is happening here. They had literally everything that they could ever desire. And in a moment, everything that they could have ever desired is ripped out of their hands. Everything. 
Every single relationship that could have ever happened. And so we'll get to that in a little bit. But they lost literally everything whenever their eyes were open. They take that bite and boom, all of a sudden, they see everything. They recognize good. They can recognize evil. They recognize who they are before their loving and good and gracious father. We know this because the text, if we were to read it, says they see themselves as naked. And then for the first time ever, they experience shame and they're afraid and they hear God walking in the garden. And so they hide from the father. For the first time ever, they have to hide from their father. They don't have to. They choose to hide from God the Father whenever there was perfect peace and balance and shalom and goodness. Sin has infiltrated the system. What do they do? The very first thing they do, they string together fig leaves. Think about little fig leaves. And they try to put them around their torsos and around their body to try to hide them from God. That's the, that's the state of mind that they are in. Man, whenever it comes to sin, do we also not try to hide behind our figs? Do we not try to do that? I mean, think about like, when's the last time? Let me, uh, let me help you set in the effects of the fall here. When's the last time you openly confessed to your missional community? I mean, real sin in your life. Not like Andrew and I were fighting. I mean, like, like when's the, the last time you like sat and you, you said something to the effect of like, I'm finding the woman or the man at the gym attractive and I can't seem to stop thinking about them instead of saying, well, Andrew and I are just in a tiff. We're in a bit of an argument. Like I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm already racking up more debt than I can carry because I'm trying to meet the expectations of my family for the holiday season. Not, we're having some financial issues, we could use some prayer. But I mean, like, really, remember Justin's sermon from last week? Like, really, like, getting into the caverns of our heart and explaining and expressing, like, here's what's actually taking place. Most of the time, whenever I sit, I'll sit in a counseling session with someone for an hour and a half or two hours, and I'll ask them, hey, so what can I pray for you about? And they're like, nothing, I'm fine. I'm like, we literally just sat here for two hours. You are not fine. Looked up the definition, not you. It's the opposite of everything that you are right now. You are most certainly not fine. No, I'm fine. The Christian F word, isn't it? Four-letter word. No, I'm fine, fine, fine. Why do we do that? Here's why you do that. Because you don't actually believe in the fall. What are we doing in that moment? We're hiding behind our figs. We are no different than Adam and Eve. I love Genesis 3 because it puts everyone on an even playing field. Cat's out the bag, church. Turns out we all need Jesus. That's what Genesis 3 Reveals. And so here's the deal. Before we get any further, let me just invite you from behind them. Like, brothers and sisters, let me invite you to come out from behind your figs. Like, stop putting up the facade that we talked about in our confession earlier. All the Christmas lights and all the blow up Santas in the world are not big enough figs to hide our sins. Come out from behind that. Come out clean to your family and tell them that the pressures that they're putting on you are more than you can actually handle. Come clean before your missional community and talk to them about the real realities of how your marriage is doing. Like the fall says, we are most certainly not okay. And the beauty of this is this. Whenever you confess and you realize that it's just fig leaves that are hiding you, what you begin to see is not these figs that kind of make you look pretty and decorated. You recognize figs for what they truly are, as the Bible would call them, and that's filthy rags. Just hiding behind that. And you can come out behind that. Genesis 3 invites us out from behind 
that. And so Adam and Eve are sitting here. They're fearful before the Lord. They're scared that they're going to lose this relationship with God, maybe this relationship with each other, right? They're, they're hiding. Think about that. They're, so, they're like children hiding behind a curtain, giggling, you know what I mean? Because mom just got off work. And so they're sitting there. They're, they're hiding from their father who knows all things, by the way, has literally spoke creation into existence. And they're sitting there hiding because they think that God is going to approach them in some damning way. Do you know how he approaches them? Let me just invite you to see how he approaches them. God, he, he moves towards them in the garden, and then he begins to ask them questions. We can learn a lot about how to approach someone who's dealing with sin from Genesis 3, 9 through 13. Throw that up for, for me, Kelly. We'll get into some of this text now. It says this, Genesis 3, 9 through 13. It says, but the Lord God called to the man and said to him, listen to these four questions, where are you? And he said, I, Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And God says, second question, who told you that you were naked? That is one of the most beautiful questions in the whole entire Bible. Who told you that you were naked? We're gonna get there. He says, thirdly, have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? He does not skirt around the sin. He just asks him directly. Have you done the very thing I asked you not to do? The only thing I asked you not to do. The man throws the woman under the bus. The woman who you gave me, right? You gave her to me, Lord. She was on you. In the Hebrew, that's actually an like a accusatory statement to the Lord. The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord said to the woman, what is this? Fourth question, what is this that you've done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I Eight. Adam is there, he's hiding in shame and embarrassment. Eve is behind him, hi, beside him, hiding in shame and embarrassment. The very first time in all of creation, these are the feelings, the emotions that they're, uh, that they're experiencing together for the first time ever. I mean, just think about that. The total absence of shame, and now there's shame. Total absence of fear, and now there's fear. They had never felt any of this before, yet here they are setting it. And one would expect this father maybe to come and kind of drop the hammer on them, but what he does is he pursues them, and he asks them four questions. We're going to look at one of the questions for the sake of time. It's the second question that God asks, and he says, who told you that you were naked? Who told you that you were naked? I love that question. Man, that is literally one of the best questions in the whole Bible. This is a question that you need to ask yourself. This is a question you need to ask a brother or sister when they're setting before you. And Lord willing, they actually confess to you where they're at and how they're doing. You just simply need to look at them and say, who told you that? Who, who told you the thing that you're believing? Who told you to come back to my illustration earlier? Who told you that the guy or the gal at the gym would make a better spouse? Who told you that? Who, who told you that you had to meet the expectations for your family this holiday season like you did last holiday season when, it, season when it almost killed you? Who told you that you needed to do that? Who told you that you had to stuff your anger or you couldn't be real or you couldn't be transparent or you couldn't come undone before people who claim to love you? He says, looks at him, he says, who told you that you were naked? God, is that not the best question? Who told you that? My wife, Andrea, got me thinking about this question two years ago. I don't know about y'all, but sometimes I get into a spiral. Anybody else ever hit a spiral sometimes? Like Adam is here in the text. We read this like black and white, boring. But he's, he's sitting here. If you were to read in the text, what he says was, I saw you coming. I was afraid. I'm naked. Right? I was scared of you. It's not all black and white and mundane like we read it. Like Adam is in a spiral. I saw you. I started putting together figs. I had to hide from you. I heard you crunching branches as you were walking through. Like I had to do something about this situation. He's in a full-blown spiral, man. I can relate. 
I hit a spiral about every three to four months. I talk with you about it usually whenever, whenever it's going on. Andrea, you know, loves me well a lot. In those moments, she calls my menstrual cycle, okay? And so she downplays it. I don't want to downplay someone's mental state, but she's like, it's okay, you'll get through it. We'll get through this thing together. But I spiral sometimes. And I have seasons where I'm like, man, that sermon sucked. That counseling session was terrible. That coaching session was no good. I can't believe that I said this or I did this. And I'll come home and she'll literally hit me with, who told you that your sermon sucked? Who told you that the counseling did not go well? Who told you that you shouldn't have done that coaching at the church that you were at? Who told you that? Look, a lot of you guys are believing a ton of lies about yourselves right now. Let me ask you the same question. Who told you that? That the lie that you're believing is actually true? Who told you that? This is free. There, when you hit these spirals, if you're a note taker, this is going to be for you. If you're online, you can, this is sidebar conversation. When you hit that moment of spiral, there are three voices that you'll listen to that are not the Lord's. You're going to listen to your emotions. You're going to listen to your own experience, how you think things are going to go. Or you're going to listen to your own reasoning. I just thought it'd be easier if I did it this way. Emotions, reasoning, and your personal or perceived experience are the three things that will dictate your life in the midst of a spiral that are not the word of God. Did I nail it? It's exactly what we do. And so in that, I would come back to who told you that your emotions know best? We have a saying in the Johnson household, we treat emotions like we treat children. You've probably heard me say this before. We listen to them, but they don't make any major decisions for our family. I got a six-year-old that's more emotional than all of you put together. Who told you that your reasoning, your hypothetical that you put together in your mind is going to play out that way in the real world? Who told you that? Who told you that that would happen? Who told you that you should have the best experiences? Sometimes it's not the best experiences that teach us, but it's actually moments of suffering that help us better identify with our suffering servant. And so David, or so David, so the father comes, he pushes towards them. He asks them four questions. One that we're looking at, who told you that you were naked? Ask the Lord. See, the moment Adam stopped listening to God, he allowed someone else to lead his wife, and cosmic treason ensued. All hell broke loose on earth, and everything that they knew was infected with sin. Is that clear enough for the fall? And the Bible holds Adam accountable, so I say, hear the word of the Lord and hear the warning men. The second thing that we see is the curse, then, that comes from that. So God cannot allow this to stand, uh, so when God says, like, there, you cannot have something imperfect in front of a perfect God, that's why we need Jesus to invite us back into your relationship with the Father. So Adam and Eve have to be removed from this uh, situation to be taken out of the garden. So the curse that happens reads like this. Genesis three fourteen through 19 says this. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field, and on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And then verse 15, this is that proto-evangelium. This is the promise of the Messiah. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring or seed and her offspring or seed, you could say. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is the eye contact. This is the first time in Scripture that the gospel is given. This is the first time in scripture that the promise of a son has come. It is in this moment in scripture, within the curse, God doesn't just hit them just with wrath, but he hits them with wrath and mercy at the same time. And so even the serpent, he's cursing the serpent most certainly, and he's saying, you are eternally forever cursed. By your belly, you will slither. 
He says, and then there's coming a seed. There's a promised seed that is going to come from Eve. It's going to hurt him. It will bruise his heel, but he most certainly is going to crush your head, right? He's going to beat your face in is what he's saying. There's nothing nice. There's nothing polite about what is happening here. But that's a promise of the Messiah is coming. It is in that very moment, the advent begins. All of creation in that moment is waiting. They're in a season of Advent, whether they realize it or not, they're awaiting this coming king. They're awaiting this Messiah. It's this promise right here that initiates Advent. It's a marketing scheme, right? Not some high up executive that gets paid way too much money to make a half of a tweetable sentence. Like it's the father, it's the king of kings and the Lord of lords who spoke everything into existence, who Adam and Eve took that beauty away in their sin. And he says nothing to them yet, but he says to the serpent, forever cursed, Messiah is coming. That's the promise. That's a beautiful promise, yes? And then verse 16 says, to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. Come on, ladies. In pain, you shall bring forth children. There it is again, in case you didn't get it the first time, okay? Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and you have eaten of the tree which I have commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, men. Men, you ever feel like your work feels like thorns and thistles sometimes? Through thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Listen, anybody in the room can deny Jesus. You can get people to doubt God. You can't disprove him. There's not a single person in the room that can cause us to doubt or deny the effects of the curse right here. Every single person in the room has felt the effects of what God said was going to happen. Every single person in the room has felt the effects. And so sin enters into the cosmos at a very cosmic level, kills everything that was once perfect. And in that, there are four relationships that are broken. Okay, continuing to set up this series for you. There's four relationships that are broken. Let's just set the curse together. Lest uh, you don't believe me. Think about this. Relationship between man and God completely shattered. Adam and Eve are in relationship with God. They're walking with him in the cool of the day, as it says in Genesis 1 and 2. They're uh, delighting in him. They're called the Sabbath and to rest in his presence. And now, post-sin, as they have committed this treason against God, they're no longer walking in the cool of the day, but rather they're hiding behind fig leaves in fear and shame. Do we not respond the same way today whenever we're sitting in sin that we've not confessed to our brothers and sisters? Do we not still try to piece together figs like we talked about earlier and we try to hide in shame and we're fearful to actually come forward within our missional community or within just even a smaller group? It could be just a brother or sister at coffee or over a pint and we still like we're highly reluctant to share where we're at. Why? Because we don't want to be seen and found out for who we truly are. There's a relationship that's broken between man and self. Adam and Eve went from seeing themselves as the perfect image bearers of God to now experiencing shame, to experiencing fear, to being afraid. Think about all the psychological warfare that you go through whenever you're setting in that spiral that I mentioned earlier. And you have anxiety and you have depression and it turns to various levels of dependency. There's all these things that happen psychologically that are an effect of Genesis 3 in our lives doesn't matter if you're a Christian or not. No one in the room will deny that. Like you didn't wake up on Tuesday and think, you know what? 
I want to feel as if I could never get out of my bed again. That would be great. Sometimes that's a good day. A little Netflix, just hanging out in bed. But you know what I'm talking about? Like when you wake up and you think, I don't know what's wrong with my psyche right now. I, can't, I do not have the strength to get out of my bedroom. No one asked for that. That is the results of Genesis 3. I put man versus man in the next one, but just man versus humanity on the next one for you. Man versus man. Their relationship is shattered. Adam and Eve were in perfect harmony, perfect shalom. There was a perfect marriage that they existed in. There was no need to fight, no need to quarrel. They had one command. It was to be fruitful and multiply and take care of the things. They had a great life. And and what happens? God comes into the garden and he he asks uh, Adam a question. He says, who told you you were naked? And Adam says, the woman you gave me made me eat. Adam doesn't even answer the question. He just throws his wife under the bus. Do you know anything about, have you ever had, let me just ask you, do you know anything about relational strife? Have you been in a relationship with anyone ever in your entire life? You've probably fought with someone, yes? You've probably argued with someone, yeah? Probably felt betrayed at some time, yes? Probably did the betraying at some time, did you not? Lied about, gossiped about. All of humanity, relationship is broken in humanity. Having a hard time believing that? Turn on the news. It's full of jolly goodness about humanity, right? You want to have a really great day? Start your day watching the news. It'll set you up right, won't it? Man versus creation. Listen, all of creation, the relationship there is literally broken. Every single aspect of Creation is broken. He says to the men, by the sweat of your brow. I mean, does your work ever feel more laborious for you, men? Like some days are just harder than other days, and you're doing the same tasks. He says, women, your creation, you're literally going to cry out in childbirth. We're expecting six new babies in our church right now. Tell me our ladies don't know what we're talking about, what he's talking about. We just had a new baby over here. Jess is like, yes and amen. Know all about that right? Welcome Wells into the family. Just think about it. All of creation, literally mourning, literally groaning. Look at the seasons change. Where do you think winter came from and snow? It's a perfect picture of this. Starts off all beautiful and white. And in two days in the Midwest, it's slushy, brown, and disgusting, and you can't wait for it to leave. That's effect of the fall right there. All of creation groaning out, longing for this Messiah to come. And this is what we were born into, okay? Listen, you're born into this reality, born into and under the curse of Adam. In the Psalms, not on the screen, but King David, whenever he's talking about being born, he says, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. He talks elsewhere about being in sin in the womb, like born into the curse of Adam and Eve. And so when we get up here and we say things like, hey, you're born into sin, and people get all up in arms about that, we're not saying you're morally compromised. We're not saying your morality sucks. We're not saying you don't pay your taxes or that you beat your wife, although those things might be possible. What we're saying is this, because of Adam and Eve's rebellion, you were born into the effects of their rebellion, whether you like it or not. And you can say, I didn't do anything to deserve that. And I would say, I know, I know. But the Bible says this is the reality of the situation. We are born children of wrath, not by anything that we could ever do. This is why we need a Jesus to save us by nothing that we can do. That is the gospel. That's the good news. This is what we're waiting for. 
If the gospel was uh, you're born and you have a free one-way ticket to heaven and eternity forever, it wouldn't be good news. It would just be a Tuesday. It wouldn't mean anything to us. It would have no weight. It would have no value. But the scripture says you're born into this mess by nothing that you've done. So then also you need a better Adam, a better savior, a better Messiah, a better firstborn from all creation to drag you up out of this mess by nothing you can do. That's the gospel. Right? Don't take offense to it when we say you're born into sin. It's the reality of your situation. Just own it. The only difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is that we believe Jesus pulls, up us, pulls us up out of that mess. A non-Christian believes the exact same thing. No one can deny the effects of evil in the world. They're just saying, I'm going to take the consequences for being born into that evil. We're saying, I don't want anything to do with those consequences. Jesus took that for me. Thank you, Jesus. Until then, we advent. We wait on this Messiah to come. Ephesians 2, Kelly, if you could put it up here for me, says this. And you were dead. All right, Reformed Church, Greek word for dead means what? Dead. You're always so bummed when you say it. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once, in which you once walked, following the curse of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Amen and amen. By nothing we have done, we were born into this mess. By nothing we could ever do, we were redeemed from it. That's what Jesus does. Whenever I, which leads then to the last one here is the promise. Whenever I got accepted into uh, Acts 29, which is a, a church planning network uh, that we're a part of, it's very prestigious. It's a high honor to get to be a part of 829, and, and we are as a church, which is cool. They sent me this Bible. It's about mm, eight years ago, they sent me this Bible. I've used it um, ever since. And on the back of it, you can't see this, but on the back of it, my wife Andrea got child of wrath, saved by grace, embroidered in the back of it, based out of Ephesians. She was like, I just want you to know where you came from, and don't forget it, right? Child of wrath, got it, saved by grace. I have a hard time believing that sometimes. Child of wrath, I can identify with most days. Saved by grace, I have a hard time. Anyone else? And yet the promise remains the same. From her womb, from her offspring will come the one who will crush your head. It will most certainly bruise his heel. That is the promise. And so as we look at Advent, what we're going to do is we're going to look at a, a different promise of God that's hinged upon that promise every week for the next four weeks. And then you already know this because if you go to church here, we're going to look at that promise every week for the rest of our lives because we want to preach the gospel to you. Amen? And so this different, this season isn't really any different. We're just going to focus on different scriptures before we get into the Psalms in 2021 or 2022, which is we're going to start on. But in Genesis 3.15, throughout the whole rest of the Bible, so literally from page two all the way forward, every single promise that ever comes, every single scripture that ever comes, everything that happens in scripture, every event, all the way down to the measurements of the temple are pointing to this need for a Messiah. Everything that happens is, a, is because they're in a season of Advent. And so even though Jesus has come and saved us from being child, children of wrath and, and made us in his image, perfectly brought us back into relationship with him through his work, not by our work, we're still in a season of Advent. 
because we're waiting on him to come back. He's not yet come back to collect us. And so we too then Advent, whenever you look at the culture and you think, what is happening in our culture? What is going on in our culture? Here's what's happening. We're in a season of Advent. With the, the effects of Genesis 3 are what's happening. We look at so-so injustice, and you look at all the chaos, you look at everything else that is taking place. Why are those things taking place, Pastor? Because Genesis 3 is real. But the beautiful aspect of Genesis 3 being real means that Genesis 3.15 is also real. That there is a real Jesus who has given a real promise that he will most certainly redeem and recreate everything the way that it was. Amen? All right, let's take communion with that in mind. I gotta land the ship, 1015, so. Uh, every week we gather together and we take communion. And whenever we do so, we take communion not as a, like a, a religious opportunity. It's not a, an opportunity to just be uh, rooted in our works together, but rather it's a redemptive opportunity. It's an opportunity for us to come back together and to be reminded that we are, in fact, in this season of Advent. We're in this season of waiting, this season of being called to be dependent upon the Lord and trusting in his word and trusting on his spirit and trusting on the church. But it's not about our works. It's about his works in our places, our substitutes. So if you could stand with me, 1 Corinthians 11 says this. It says, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he gave and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So for those of you that are in Christ, this is a meal that's for you. If you didn't if you couldn't grab one on the way in, feel free to make your way up to a basket in the front of the room to grab a communion cup. Uh, as you look at those elements, though, the bread represents Christ's body that was broken for you. It, it literally represents the bruising of the heel that was promised in Genesis 3.15. And then you see the cup, which represents Christ's blood that was spilled on your behalf, in your place, as your substitute. Again, representing what was promised in Genesis 3.15. Every single promise that comes from that moment is hinged upon that. And so whenever we come together in communion, this is an incredible opportunity for us to confess. And, and not just to confess so we can take communion, but to confess so that we can actually identify with Adam and Eve in the garden and simultaneously identify with the reality that we need Jesus, that we're still waiting on him. We're still waiting on him to fulfill his promise. We're still waiting on him to come back and collect. And until that day comes, it's gonna be chaotic and messy for us while we're here. So I would invite you to confess before you partake, but the table is open and the meal is yours.